0: Chapter seven, part two of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann. Translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Seven Imma fraulein von Isenschnibbe had been well informed. On the very evening of the day on which she had brought the Princess zu the great news, the courier published the announcement of Samuel Spollmann's the world-renowned Spoelmann's impending arrival, and ten days later, at the beginning of October, it was the October of the year in which the Grand Duke Albrecht had entered his thirty-second, and Prince Klaus Heinrich his twenty-sixth year, thus barely giving time for public curiosity to reach a really high point, his arrival became a fact, a plain actuality on an autumn-tinged, entirely ordinary weekday which was destined to impress itself on the future, as a date to be remembered forever. The Sprolemans arrived by special train. That was the only distinction about their debut to start with, for everybody knew that the Prince's suite in the Spa Court Hotel was by no means dazzlingly magnificent. A few idlers, guarded by a small detachment of policemen, had gathered behind the platform barriers. Some representatives of the press were present but whoever expected anything out of the ordinary was disappointed. Spurlmann would almost have passed unrecognized he was so unimposing. For a long time, people took his family physician for him. Dr. Watercluse, people said he was called. A tall American who wore his hat on the back of his head and kept his mouth distended in a perpetual smile between his close-trimmed white whiskers, the while he half-closed his eyes. It was not till the last moment that people learned that it was the little clean-shaven man in the faded overcoat, who wore his hat pulled down over his eyes, who was the actual Spülmann, and the spectators were agreed that there was nothing striking about him. All sorts of stories had been in circulation about him. Some witty fellow had spread the report that Spulman had front teeth of solid gold and a diamond set in the middle of each but although the truth or untruth of this report could not be tested at once, for Spolman did not show his teeth, he did not laugh, but rather seemed angry and irritated by his infirmity, yet when they saw him nobody was any longer inclined to believe it. As for Miss Spolman, his daughter, she had turned up the collar of her fur coat and stuffed her hands in the pockets, so that there was hardly anything to be seen of her except a pair of disproportionately big brown-black eyes which swept the crowd with a serious look whose meaning it was hard to interpret by her side stood the person whom the onlookers identified as her companion the countess lorvenjul a woman of thirty-five plainly dressed and taller than either of the spoelmanns who carried her little head with its thin smooth hair pensively on one side and kept her eyes fixed in front of her with a kind of rigid meekness. What without question attracted most attention was a Scottish sheepdog, which was led on a cord by a stolid-looking servant, an exceptionally handsome, but, as it appeared, terribly excitable beast, that leaped and danced and filled the station with its frenzied barking. People said that a few of Spuhlmann's servants, male and female, had already arrived at the spa-court some hours before. At any rate it was left to the servant with the dog to look after the luggage by himself, and while he was doing so his masters drove in two ordinary flies, Mr. Spoelmann with Dr. Watercluse, Miss Spohlmann with the Countess to the spa-garden. There they got out, and there for six weeks they led a life, the cost of which it did not need all their money to meet. They were lucky the weather was fine it was a blue autumn a long succession of sunny days from october into november and miss spoelmann rode daily that was her only luxury with her companion on horses which she hired by the week from the livery stables mr spoelmann did not ride although the courier with obvious reference to him published a note by its medical colleague according to which riding had a soothing effect in cases of stone, owing to its jolting, and helped to disperse the stone. But the hotel staff knew that the famous man practiced artificial riding within the four walls of his room, with the help of a machine, a stationary velocipede to whose saddle a jolting motion was imparted by the working of the pedals. He was a zealous drinker of the healing waters, the Ditlinda spring, by which he seemed to set great store. He appeared first thing every morning in the Fühlhaus, accompanied by his daughter, who for her part was quite healthy and only drank with him for company's sake, and then, in his faded coat and with his hat pulled down over his eyes, took his exercise in the spa-garden and Wandelhalle, drinking the water the while through a glass tube out of a blue tumbler, watched at a distance by the two american newspaper correspondents whose duty it was to telegraph to their papers a thousand words daily about spoelmann's holiday resort and who were therefore bound to try to get something to telegraph about otherwise he was rarely visible his illness kidney colic so people said extremely painful attacks seemed to confine him often to his room if not to his bed and while Miss Spuhlmann with Countess Löwenjul appeared two or three times at the court theatre, when, in black velvet dress with an Indian scarf of a wonderful gold-yellow colour around her fresh young shoulders, she looked quite bewitching with her pearl-white complexion and great black pleading eyes, her father was never seen in the box with her. He took, it is true, in her company, one or two drives through the capital, to do some shopping, get some idea of the town, and see a few select sights. He went for a walk with her, too, through the park, and twice inspected there the Schloss Finoort, the second time alone, when he was so much interested as to take measurements of the walls with an ordinary yellow rule, which he took out of his faded coat. But he was never seen in the dining-room of the spa-court, for whether because he was on an almost meatless diet, or from some other reason, he took his meals exclusively with his own party in his own rooms, and the curiosity of the public had, on the whole, remarkably little to feed on. The result was that Spoelmann's arrival at the spa at first did not prove so beneficial as Fräulein von Isenschnibbe and many others beside her had expected. The export of bottles increased, that was certain. It quickly rose to half as many again as its previous figure, and remained at that. But the influx of foreigners did not increase noticeably. The guests who came to feast their eyes on so abnormal an existence soon went away again, satisfied or disappointed. Besides, it was for the most part not the most desirable elements of society that were attracted by the millionaire's presence. Strange creatures appeared in the streets, unkempt and wild-eyed creatures, inventors, projectors, would-be benefactors of mankind, who hoped to enlist Spulmann's sympathies for their hobbies. But the millionaire made himself absolutely inaccessible to these people. Indeed, purple with rage, he howled at one of them who made advances towards him in the park, in such a way that the busybody quickly skedaddled, and it was often said that the torrent of begging letters which daily flowed into him letters which often bore stamps which the officials of the grand ducal post-office had never seen before was at once discharged into a paper basket of quite unusual capacity spoelmann seemed to have forbidden all business letters to be sent to him seemed determined to enjoy his holiday to the utmost and during his travels in europe to live exclusively for his health or ill-health The courier, whose reporter had lost no time in making friends with his American colleagues, was in a position to announce that a reliable man, a so-called chief manager, was Mr. Spurlmann's representative in America. He went on to say that his yacht, a gorgeously decorated vessel, was awaiting the great man at Venice, and that as soon as he had finished his cure he intended to travel south with his party." It told also, in answer to importunate requests from its readers, of the romantic origin of the Spülmann millions, from their beginning in Victoria, whither his father had drifted from some German office-stool or other, young, poor, and armed only with a pick, a shovel, and a tin plate. There he had begun by working as help to a gold-digger, as a day-laborer, in the sweat of his brow." and then luck had come to him. A man, a claim-owner on a small scale, had fared so badly that he could no longer buy himself his tomatoes and dry bread for dinner, and in his extremity had been obliged to dispose of his claim. Spilman Sr. had bought it, had staked his one card, and with his whole savings amounting to five pounds sterling, had bought this piece of alluvial land called Paradise Field not more than forty feet square and the next day he had turned up a foot under the surface a nugget of pure gold the tenth biggest nugget in the world the paradise nugget weighing nine hundred and eighty ounces and worth five thousand pounds that related the courier had been the beginning spoelmann's father had emigrated to south america with the proceeds of his find to bolivia and as a gold-washer, amalgam mill-owner and mine-owner, had continued to extract the yellow metal direct from the rivers and the womb of the mountains. Then and there Spülmann Sr. had married, and the courier went so far as to hint in this connection that he had done so defiantly and without regard to the prejudices generally felt in those parts. However, he had doubled his capital, and succeeded in investing his money most profitably. He had moved on northwards to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That was in the fifties, the time of a great boom in railway construction, and Spurman had begun with one investment in the Baltimore and Ohio Railway. He had also leased a coal mine in the west of the state, the profits from which had been enormous. Finally he had joined that group of fortunate young men which bought the famous Blockhead Farm for a few thousand pounds, the property which, with its petroleum wells, in a short time increased in value to a hundred times its purchase price. This enterprise had made a rich man of Spurman Senior, but he had by no means rested on his oars, but unceasingly practised the art of making money into more money, and finally into superabundant money. He had started steel works, had floated companies for the turning of iron into steel on a large scale, and for building railway bridges. He had bought up the major part of the shares of four or five big railway companies, and had been elected in the later years of his life president, vice-president, manager, or director of the companies. When the Steel Trust was formed, so the courier said, he had joined it with a holding of shares which guaranteed him an income of twelve million dollars. But at the time he had been chief shareholder and expert adviser of the Petroleum Combine, and in virtue of his holding had dominated three or four of the other trust companies, and at his death his fortune, reckoned in German currency, had amounted to around thousand million marks. Samuel, his only son, the offspring of that early marriage, contracted in defiance of public opinion had been his sole heir and the courier with its usual delicacy interpolated a remark to the effect that there was something almost sad in the idea of any one without himself contributing and through no fault of his own being born to such a situation samuel had inherited the palace on fifth avenue at new york the country mansions, and all the shares, trust bonds, and profits of his father. He inherited also the strange position to which his father had risen, his world fame and the hatred directed by his out-distanced competitors against the power of his gold, all the hatred to allay which he yearly distributed his huge donations to colleges, conservatories, libraries, benevolent institutions, and that university which his father had founded, and which bore his name. Samuel Spelman did not deserve the hatred of the out-distanced competitors. That the courier was sure of. He had gone early into the business, and had controlled the bewildering possessions of his house all by himself during his father's last years. But everybody knew that his heart had never been really in the business. His real inclinations had been, strange to say, all along much more towards music, and especially organ music, and the truth of this information on the part of the courier was certain, for Mr. Spoelmann actually kept a small organ in the spa-court, whose bellows he got a hotel servant to blow, and he could be heard from the spa-garden, playing it for an hour every day. He had married for love and not at all from social considerations, according to the courier, a poor and pretty girl, half German, half Anglo Saxon by descent. She had died, but she had left him a daughter, that wonderful blood mixture of a girl whom we now had as a guest within our walls, and who was at the time nineteen years old. Her name was Emma, a real German name, as the courier added, nothing more than an old form of Emma and it might be remarked that the daily conversation in the Spülmann household, though interlarded with scraps of English, had remained German. And how devoted the father and daughter seemed to be to each other. Every morning, by going to the spa-garden at the right time, one could watch Fräulein Spülmann, who usually entered the Fühlhause a little later than her father, take his head between her hands and give him his morning kiss on mouth and cheeks while he patted her tenderly on the back then they went arm in arm through the wandelhalle and sucked their glass tubes as they went that is how the well-informed journal gossiped and fed the public curiosity it also reported carefully the visits which miss imma kindly paid with her companion to several of the charitable institutions of the town yesterday she had made a detailed inspection of the public kitchens Today she had made a prolonged tour of the Trinity almhouses for old women, and she had recently twice attended Privy Councillor Klinghammer's lectures on the theory of numbers at the university. Had sat on the bench, a student among students, and scribbled away with her fountain pen, for everybody knew that she was a learned girl and devoted to the study of algebra. Yes, all that was absorbing reading and furnished ample food for conversation. But the topics which made themselves talked about without any help from the courier were, firstly, the dog, that noble black-and-white collie which the Spülmans had brought with them, and secondly, in a different way, the companion, Countess Löwenjul. As for the dog, whose name was Percival, generally shortened to Percy, he was an animal of so excitable and emotional a disposition as beggared description. Inside the hotel he afforded no grounds for complaint, but lay in a dignified attitude on a small carpet outside the Spurman suite. But every time he went out he had an attack of light-headedness, which caused general interest and surprise, indeed more than once actual obstruction of traffic. Followed at a distance by a swarm of native dogs, common curs which, incited by his demeanour, assailed him with censorious yaps, and which caused him no concern whatever, he flew through the streets, his nose spattered with foam and barking wildly, pirouetted madly in front of the tram-cars, made the cab-horses stumble, and twice knocked widow Clausen's cake-stall at the town hall down so violently that the sugar-cakes rolled half over the marketplace but as mr spoelmann or his daughter at once met such catastrophes with more than adequate compensation as too it was discovered that percival's attacks were really quite free from danger that he was anything but inclined to bite and steal but on the contrary kept to himself and would let nobody come near him public opinion quickly turned in his favour and to the children in particular his excursions were a constant source of pleasure Countess Leuvenjuhl, on her side, supplied food for conversation in a quieter but no less strange way. At first, when her personality and position were not yet known in the city, she had attracted the gibes of the street urchins, because, while out walking alone, she talked to herself softly and deliberately, and accompanied her words with lively and at the same time graceful and elegant gestures but she had shown such mildness and goodness to the children who shouted after her and tugged at her dress. She had spoken to them with such affection and dignity that her persecutors had slunk away abashed and confused, and later, when she became known, respect for her relations with the famous guests secured her from molestation. However, some unintelligible anecdotes were secretly circulated about her one man told how the countess had given him a gold-piece with instructions that he should box the ears of a certain old woman who was understood to have made some unseemly proposal or other to her the man had pocketed the gold-piece without however discharging his commission further it was declared as a fact that the countess had accosted the sentry in front of the fusiliers barracks and had told him at once to arrest the wife of the sergeant of one of the companies because of her moral shortcomings she had written too a letter to the colonel of the regiment to the effect that all sorts of secret and unspeakable abominations went on inside the barracks whether she was right in her facts heaven only knew but many people at once concluded that she was wrong in her head At any rate, there was no time to investigate the matter, for six weeks were soon passed, and Samuel N. Spurlmann, the millionaire, went away. He went away after having his portrait painted by Professor von Lindemann, an expensive portrait, too, which he gave to the proprietor of the spa court as a memento. He went away with his daughter, the Countess, and Dr. Watercluse, with Percival, the chamber velocipede, and his servants, went by special train to the south with the view of spending the winter on the Riviera, whither the two New York journalists had hastened ahead of him, and of then crossing back home again. It was all over. The courier wished Mr. Spurlmann a hearty farewell and expressed the hope that the cure would be found to have done him good and with that the notable interlude seemed to be closed and done with every-day life claimed its due and mr spoelmann began to fade into oblivion the winter passed it was the winter in which her grand ducal highness the princess zuried hohenried was confined of a daughter spring came and his royal highness grand duke albrecht repaired as usual to Hollerbrun. But then a rumour cropped up amongst the people and in the press, which was received at first with a shrug by the sober-minded, but became more concrete, crystallized, took to itself quite precise details, and finally won itself a dominant place in the solid and pithy news of the day. What was told? A grand ducal schloss was about to be sold? Nonsense! Which schloss? delphinenort schloss delphinenort in the north park twaddle sold to whom to spoelmann ridiculous what could he do with it restore it and live in it that's all very well but perhaps our parliament might have something to say to that they don't care twopence had the state any responsibility for keeping up schloss delphinenort if they had it's a pity they hadn't recognized it dear old place no parliament had no say in the matter have the negotiations advanced at all far rather they're completed goodness gracious then of course the exact price is known naturally sold for two millions not a farthing less impossible a royal palace royal palace be blowed we're not talking of the grimburg or of the old schloss we're talking of a country-house an unused country-house which is falling in pieces for lack of funds to keep it up so spoelmann intended to come back every year and spend several weeks in delphinenort no for he intended rather to come and settle among us all together he was sick of america wanted to turn his back on it, and his first stay amongst us was merely to spy out the land. He was ill. He wanted to retire from business. He had always remained a German at heart. The father had emigrated, and the son wanted to come back home. He wished to take his part in the modest life and intellectual resources of our country, and to spend the rest of his days in the immediate neighborhood of the Spa, All was confusion and bustle, and discussions without end. But public opinion, with the exception of the voices of a few grumblers, trended, after a short hesitation, in favor of the idea of the sale. Indeed, without this general approval, the matter could never have gone very far. It was House Minister von Knobelsdorff who first ventured on a cautious announcement of spoelmann's offer in the daily press he had waited and allowed the popular feeling to come to a decision and after the first confusion solid reasons in favour of the project had made themselves felt the business world was enchanted at the idea of having so doughty a consumer at its doors the esthetes showed themselves delighted at the prospect of seeing Schloss Delphinenort restored and kept up, at seeing the noble old building restored to honor and youth in so unforeseen, indeed so romantic a way. But the economically minded brought forward figures which were calculated to cause grave misgivings as to the financial position of the country. If Samuel N. Spülmann settled among us, he would become a taxpayer, he would have to pay us his income tax. Perhaps it was worth while showing what that meant. Mr. Spulman would be left to declare his own income, but from what one knew, and knew fairly accurately, his residence would mean a yearly revenue of two and a half millions in taxes alone, not to mention what he paid in rates. Worth thinking about, wasn't it? The question was put straight to the finance minister, Dr. Krippenreuther he would be wanting in his duty if he did not do all he could to recommend the sale of the highest quarters for patriotism demanded that spoelmann's offer should be accepted and patriotism was paramount above all other considerations so excellency von knobelsdorff had had an interview with the grand duke he had informed his master of the public opinion had added that the price offered two millions considerably exceeded the real value of the Schloss in its present condition, had remarked that such a sum meant a real windfall for the treasury, and had ended by slipping in a hint about the central heating of the old Schloss, which, if the sale was carried through, would no longer be an impossibility. In short, the single-minded old gentleman had brought his whole influence to bear in favor of the sale, and had recommended the Grand Duke to bring the matter before a family moot. Albrecht had sucked his lower lip softly against the upper and summoned the family moot. It had met in the hall of the knights over tea and biscuits. Only two feminine members, the princess Catherine and Dittlinde, had opposed the sale, on the ground of loss of dignity. "'You will be misunderstood, Albrecht,' said Dittlinde." They will charge you with want of respect to your high station. That is not right, for you have, on the contrary, too much. You are so proud, Albrecht, that everything is all the same to you. But I say no. I do not wish to see a Croesus living in one of your Schlosses. It is not right, and it was bad enough that he should have a family physician and take the prince's suite in the spa court. The courier harps on the fact that he is a tax-paying subject but in my eyes he is simply a subject and nothing else what do you think klaus heinrich but klaus heinrich voted for the sale in the first place albrecht got his central heating secondly Schpulmann was not one of the common herd he was not soap boiler unschlit he was an exception and there was no disgrace in letting him have finally Albrecht had with downcast eyes pronounced the whole family moot to be a farce the people had long ago made up their minds his ministers urged the sale and there was nothing left for him to do but to wave to the engine-driver and start the train the family moot had taken place in the spring from that time onwards the negotiations for sale which were carried on between spoelmann on the one hand and the lord marshal von boel zu Bühl on the other had proceeded apace and the summer was not far advanced before schloss delphinenort with its park and outbuildings had become the lawful property of mr spoelmann then began a scene of bustle and confusion round and in the schloss which daily attracted crowds to the northern side of the park delphinenort was improved and partly reconstructed inside by a swarm of workmen. For quick, quick was the order of the day, that was Spulmann's wish, and he had only allowed five months' respite for everything to be ready for him to enter into possession. So a wooden scaffold with ladders and platforms shot up at lightning speed round the dilapidated old building. Foreign workmen swarmed all over it, and an architect came with carte blanche over the seas to superintend the work. But the greater part of the work fell to our native manual workers to perform, and the stone masons and tilers, the joiners, gilders, upholsterers, glaziers, and parquet layers of the city, the landscape gardeners and heating and lighting experts had plenty of remunerative work all through the summer and autumn when his royal highness klaus heinrich left his window and the hermitage open the noise of the work at delphinenort penetrated right through to the empire room and he often drove past the schloss amid the respectful greetings of the public in order to satisfy himself of the progress of the restoration the gardener's cottage was painted up the sheds and stables which were destined to accommodate spoelmann's fleet of motors and carriages were enlarged and by october furniture and carpets chests and cases full of stuffs and household utensils had been delivered at schloss Delphinenort, while it was whispered among the bystanders that inside the walls skilled hands were at work fitting spoelmann's costly organ which had been sent from over the sea with electric action There was much excitement to know whether the park belonging to the Schloss, which had been so splendidly cleaned up and trimmed, was to be fenced off from the public by a wall or hedge. But nothing of the sort was done. It was Spülmann's wish that the property should continue to be accessible, that no restraint should be placed on the citizens' enjoyment of the park. The Sunday promenaders should have access right up to the Schloss up to the clipped hedge which surrounded the big square pond and this did not fail to make an excellent impression on the population indeed the courier published a special article on the subject in which it praised mr spoelmann for his philanthropy and behold when the leaves again began to fall exactly one year after his first appearance samuel spoelmann landed a second time at our railway station This time the general interest in the event was much greater than in the preceding year, and it is on record that, when Mr. Spurlmann, in his well-known faded coat and with his hat over his eyes, left his saloon, loud cheers were raised by the crowd of spectators, an expression of feelings which Mr. Spurlmann seemed rather inclined to resent, and which not he but Dr. Watercloose acknowledged, with blinking eyes and a broad smile when miss spoelmann too alighted a cheer was raised and one or two urchins even shouted when percy the collie appeared springing leaping and altogether beside himself on the platform in addition to the doctor and countess lovenjuhl there were two unknown persons in attendance two clean-shaven and decided-looking men in strangely roomy coats they were mr Spulman's secretaries messrs Flebs and slippers as the courier announced in its report at that time delphinenort was far from ready and the Spulmans at once took possession of the first floor of the chief hotel where a big haughty paunch-bellied man in black the steward or butler of the Spulman establishment who had preceded them had made preparations for them and put the chamber velocipede together with his own hands. Every day, while Miss Emma with her countess and Percy went for a ride or a visit to some charitable institution, Mr Spoelmann hung about his house, superintending the work and giving orders, and when the end of the year approached just after the first snow had fallen, prospect became fact and the Spoelmanns took up their abode in Schloss Delfinenort. Two motor-cars—their arrival had been watched with interest, splendid cars they were—bore the six members of the party. Messrs. flebs, and slippers sat in the hinder one, driven by the leather-clad chauffeurs, with servants in snow-white fur coats and crossed arms beside them. In a few minutes from the hotel through the city gardens, and as the cars dashed along the noble chestnut avenue which led to the drive the urchins climbed up the high lamp-posts which stood at all four corners of the big spa basin and waved their caps and cheered so spoelmann and his belongings settled down among us and we basked in the light of his presence his white and gold livery was seen and known in the city just as the brown and gold Grand Ducal livery was seen and known. The negro in scarlet plush who was doorkeeper at Delphinenort soon became a popular figure, and when passers-by heard the subdued rumble of Mr. Spoelmann's organ from the interior of the Schloss, they lifted a finger and said, Hark! he's playing. That means he's not got colic for the moment." Miss Emma was to be seen daily by the side of Countess Leveignoul followed by a groom and with Percy capering round riding or driving a smart four in hand through the city gardens while the servant who sat on the back seat stood up from time to time drew a long silver horn from a leather sheath and wound a shrill warning of their approach and by getting up early one could see father and daughter every morning go in a dark red brougham, or in fine weather on foot through the park of Schloss Hermitage to the spa-garden in order to drink the waters Emma, for her part as already mentioned again began a course of visits to the benevolent institutions of the city though she appeared not to give up her studies for all that for from the beginning of the half-term she regularly attended the lectures of the councillor Klinghammer at the university, sat daily in a black dress with white collar and cuffs among the young students in the lecture theatre, and drove her fountain pen, with her forefinger raised in the air, a trick of hers when writing, over the pages of her notebook. The Spelmans lived in retirement they did not mix in the life of the town as was natural in view of both mr Spielmann's ill-health and of his social loneliness what social group could he have attached himself to nobody even suggested to him that he should consort with soap-boiler unschlit or bank director woltzmilch on confidential terms yet he was soon approached with appeals to his generosity and the appeals were not in vain For Mr. Spülmann, who, it was well known, before his departure from America, had given a large sum in dollars to the Board of Education in the United States, and had also stated in so many words that he had no intention of withdrawing his yearly contributions to the Spülmann University and his other educational foundations. He, shortly after his arrival at Delphinenort, put his name down For a subscription of ten thousand marks to the dorothea children's hospital for which a collection was just being made an action the nobleness of which was immediately recognized in fitting terms by the courier and the rest of the press in fact although the spoelmanns lived in seclusion in a social sense a certain amount of publicity attached to their life among us from the earliest moments and in the local section of the daily newspapers at least their movements were followed with as much particularity as those of the members of the Grand Ducal House. The public were informed when Miss Emma had played a game of lawn tennis with a countess and Messrs. Flebs and Slippers in the Delphinenort Park. It was noted when she had been at the court theatre, and whether her father had gone with her for an act or two of the opera and if Mr. Spoolman shrank from curiosity, never leaving his box during the intervals, and scarcely ever showing himself on foot in the streets, yet he was obviously not insensible to the duties of a spectacular kind which were inherent in an extraordinary existence like his own, and he gave the love of gazing its due. End of section 13